Yo, what is up, my friends? Welcome to another episode of Dostcast. My name is Vinamar Kasana. If you are new to our YouTube channel or our audio podcast platforms, please subscribe or follow because we release new episodes every Tuesday and Friday at 9 p.m. Indian Standard Time. Today's guest is Ron Malhotra. He flew in all the way from Australia, where he, in the past, managed millions of dollars for extremely rich people, and now helps other individuals become rich, gain a ton of wealth. and overall success not just material success but then also the kind of success that you need um to be sorted in the head um this particular conversation blew my mind because we delved super deep into why some people stay poor how the three skills of making money keeping money and amplifying money are completely different uh his hopes and expectations for india as a land of wealth creators and the current crisis of masculinity we face not only in the west but also in our own country india i hope you enjoy this episode and it begins in 3 2 1 what i say for so far was <clears throat> see i know of all the things that you do the many hats you wear but i want to know a little bit of the back story um you were not born in melbourne you were born in new delhi and then you went to australia and you worked in a corporate career for a long time which is why you were sort of i saw that in one of your videos and you also mentioned where some of the uh, dressing up in suits comes from like that's that's the style um but at what age did you move from new delhi in what circumstances and who were you growing up in australia were you an immigrant kid of sorts were you assimilated from the get go like yeah so moved to australia in my early teens and the when i moved there the indian community was virtually non-existent like in the last 15 years the indian community has spread massively but when i went to school there um i felt i was fairly westernized when we went there anyway because uh, my parents were fairly westernized coming from new delhi they were quite westernized but they weren't they didn't have money always struggled for money Uh, so i from an integration point of view i felt that uh, there was a few indian kids they didn't integrate well but i integrated really well because there were things about the west that i actually liked but australia is a bit different from the united states very quiet when we went there it was very quiet it was not like high rise buildings and cosmopolitan it's like a big suburban land the entire and thing. people were very laid back yeah i i actually remember even thinking that there is hardly any people anywhere it was very quiet it's very different now but back then it was like just a small regional town probably compared to a regional town here somewhere yeah you know so it wasn't as bustling and not as cosmopolitan and you know it took me some while to understand that you know how people perceive the west in india is not necessarily how it is but also not the whole western world is not the same australia is very different from the us which is very different from the united kingdom so they're different Uh Australia has its own flavor it's got its own culture but there's a lot of Sri Lankans in Australia so there are early settlers in Melbourne especially i think out of Sri Lanka um Melbourne is probably their favorite destination so it's a huge community so i blended with them you know i i spent a lot of time with sri lankans i grew up with a lot of sri lankans and a lot of people thought i was sri lankan because i hung out with them right and i remember the sri lankan saying to me you're the only indian that's ever allowed in this group Um so it was interesting so I grew up in Sri Lankans and a lot of the Sri Lankans were massively into the hip hop culture they were like the African Americans of Australia right 
So that's how we grew up. And, um, but we didn't have money. Struggled for money the whole time. Mm. And um, there was some drama at home, which is why I moved out at a very early age. I was quite rebellious as a teenager, and mm. I said, I, I don't want to. So what would you do as a teenager? Like, what is like teenage youth life in Australia? Like, I know here, in these small cities, we would just drive around doing stupid stuff because there, there was nothing else to do. There was no cafes or clubs we could go to. We just, you know, waste our time. There's a not, there wasn't a lot to do there either. But I had a bunch of friends. They used to play the guitar. We were into, there were some of them were into heavy metal, some of them were into hip hop and rap. So I started spending a lot of time with them. Um, you know, I don't want to say this publicly, but the real, I was breaking the law by driving when I was very young. Uh -huh. um, you don't do those types of things, right? But back then, you know, I was quite rebellious. And I was quite angry because of the way my life was materializing. I didn't like th how things were. And um, my parents were not very controlling, you know, like how some parents are quite controlling with the culture. Although there was a lot of pressure on me to excel um, academically as well. But I wasn't interested in school. I was actually a very bad student. Mm. So I had a lot of problems at school. Um, now I've obviously over the years realized I'm a very good learner when I'm not a good student. And the difference to me is that good students are very good at following rules. Good learners are very good at asking questions. Mm. So I'm a very curious learner and I didn't know it at the time. I actually thought that I should not form a career in anything that has requires studies because both my parents family members and teachers, they all think that I'm not uh, academically inclined. Mm. But as it turns out, I'm very curious and I love learning. I just don't like to be told what to learn. So that was my issue. So I think uh, as an Indian kid, I was very rebellious. I think most of my extended family would agree and say that he was one that did not comply with anything. Um, I don't think that was necessarily a Western attribute. It was just I'm very individualistic. I yeah. like to think for myself. Um, whilst I really love the Indian culture, I just this, I just resist any forms of control, whether it's mm. cultural, fam family-based, educational-based, cultural-based. I don't like control. I don't control anybody. I don't like control. So I, I started doing a lot of thinking for myself. And then eventually I, get, I got a job at the supermarket. I was very young, packing mm. bags, just putting vegetables in a bag and packing it like that because the money wasn't bad for a mm. kid who hasn't, doesn't have a lot of expenses. You know, the two $300 a week I was making was good money. And I thought I can buy my disc man and I can buy a few things. Right? I didn't really have anything else. Buy some clothes, sunglasses. So I was a little bit, I wanted to look good. I wanted to be, always was financially motivated, but I didn't have any skill set other than packing bags. And I didn't want to study. So that was the beginning. That was the beginning. And um, there was a time when I had to move into a commission house. I didn't want to live at home. So I moved into a commission What's house. What's a commission house? In Australia, commission houses are houses that are reserved for convicts, delinquents, drug addicts, um, basically the lowest socioeconomic in the country. And I had a few friends who were drug dealers and they were taking drugs. And I didn't want to live at home, so I ended up moving in with them. There was a three-bedroom house, bad, in a very bad condition. And from morning to night, they'd play music, they would do drugs. I didn't do drugs. But one, the reason I moved out and I left that life was because I was working at the supermarket. None of them were working. They were all unemployed. And they left some drugs in my room. So one day I came home from the supermarket. I used to work at the supermarket. And there was all these police cars parked on the street. And so when I walked, they said, what, is that your room? I said, yes. They said, well, we found drugs in your room. Are you selling drugs? I said, no, I don't sell drugs. These guys do. So I dropped them in. I basically said, these guys do it. The police believed me because they looked at my presentation. Mm. My eyes were completely fine. So they believed me. But once they left, 
And I walked into the door, these guys shut the doors, and then I got beaten up for 20 minutes. They bashed the shit out of me, punched, used dumbbells to hit me on the head, kicked me while I was in a fetal position. And so that was the time I said, you know, I can't really rely on anybody. I didn't really feel closely connected with family. I said, I can't rely on friends. And I think that was probably a big, because people asked me what my turning point was. I think that was the turning point when I said, I must become fiercely independent. I cannot rely on people, so I, now I need to become very serious about building something, so I never have to rely on people. And at that time, I had a bit of a negative, rebellious attitude towards people. I, I didn't trust anybody. Mm. It's like, I can't trust people. There are people who care about me, but they have no idea what they're talking about. And then there are people who probably know what they're talking about, but they don't care about me. So my, my mind was, can't trust anybody. Let me get a lot of money and get my life in order, and then I'll call the shots. So that, you know, and I think I've met a lot of young guys who have a similar attitude, and I really connect with them because I say, you remind me of me back then. So I was like, let me just make a lot of money. And then I thought to myself, where am I going to make money? I said, let's get a job at the bank. And that was the, so that was the plan. So that was my first corporate job, but I was just a cashier at the bank. Mm. But you still were using, I mean, money was being exchanged through your hands all the time. That must have caused like a shift, right? At least being subjected to so much cash. I only did it for three weeks. Okay. And the manager said, you are every day, either there is more cash in the till, what are you doing? And so everyone had to stay back and help me reconcile the cash. So they got very angry and they said, you know what, until we work out what we do with you, can you stand at the door and greet people? So this was one of the first times that the bank had experienced that such a simple job, this guy has come in and he can't do such a simple job. So they were frustrated with me. I had a female manager. I was working in the top end of Collins Street. Collins Street in Melbourne is like, let's just say Wall Street in New York. Mm -hmm. So I was in the head office, but at the bank, at the retail bank, not at the private bank. And I was the cashier. And so they said, they, she got very upset with me. She said, stand at the door and greet people. We don't know what we're going to do with you. So people came in. I said, hello, how are you? And I started talking to people. And a lot of customers started to say, who is this man? He's in incredibly curious. He's such a good conversationalist. And so she started getting a lot of compliments about me. And people started to walk in and say, I want to see the bank manager. And they would point at me. So she said to me one day, she said, what's going on? Are you telling people you're the bank manager? I said, no. She said, everybody thinks you're the bank manager. I didn't know what was happening, but I already had this authority and confidence, and I love talking to people. Yeah. So a lot of people started to assume that I was the bank manager. And then one day some guy walked in uh, who was the regional manager of the bank, and he said, you know, uh, have you ever thought about becoming a financial planner? I said, no. He said, you know, let, let's talk. I think we have a role for you. So... I'm thinking this is amazing, you know, like what's going on. He was very impressed. He had heard reports that I was very good at engaging people. I and this is simply based on conversations. Your conversation skills, your charisma, charm, that's it. You're not, you don't have a degree. I was not educated. And that's the worst part, right? So I was not educated and I did not even have money. So I was not only not educated from a formal perspective, I had never managed money. I had never invested money. So purely on what he perceived to be the gift of the gab, he said, let's train you, let's make you a financial planner. Because financial planning roles back then were all about selling products. They were, had nothing to do with your understanding of the wealth management process. The industry was very unregulated once upon a time. It's very regulated now, it's changed. So he said, let's take you through some, I think I did three months of training. He threw me into financial planning. And I remember I said to my dad, dad, I'm a financial planner. And my dad said, but you have no money. So it was interesting, but 
the thing was they put me in the job because they wanted me to sell the bank's products. That's mm. how the industry used to be. Sell mutual funds, sell insurances, sell retirement funds. And I hated it. I actually realized that that was the job. And I said, what the hell am I doing? I don't speak to clients about how they manage their money. I never talk to them about their goals. All I'm doing is selling products. So I kind of realized that this industry is not what I want to be a part of. So I left after 18 months, but I remained in banking, moved my way up into private banks, and then funds management over a period of time, and then got back into financial planning mm. when the industry was regulated, because I never lost my passion for it. I always wanted to learn how to master money, but I mm. wanted to help people master money as well. Uh, uh, let me ask you something. How are private banks different from retail banks? Because I've never been around private banks, I don't know what happens in, yeah. in the back doors. Is it something different? Well, I, I was very lucky because I worked for the number one fund manager in the world. Um, and I worked for out of the top 10 banks from market capitalization, I worked for two of them. And so the private banks essentially look after high net worth and ultra high net worth individuals, mostly. Um, high net worth, in today's term, it means having a net worth of, I think it's 10 million. And then ultra high net worth is 30 million. So that was good exposure for me because for the first time in my life, I was starting to come across people who were financially very successful. Mm. And because I was looking at the balance sheet, net worth statements, investment accounts, I was starting to get a really good perspective on how these people have made money. Some of it was intergenerational wealth, but a lot of them were the first generation and they had made that kind of money. And, some, and we had expats, Australians living in Hong Kong, Asia. We had some Indian clients as well who were very rich. So for the first time, I actually got a glimpse into what these people do to create wealth. So that sparked my curiosity even further. The more I saw it, the more researched I wanted to be. And then I thought, you know what, I actually need to start doing this for myself too. Um, and I became, I was always financially motivated, but I now had structure to how I was gonna do it. Mm. I actually had a real clarity on my, what my plan was going to be. And uh, so rather than sort of teaching clients, I was actually learning from them because they had a lot more money and wealth than I did back then. So that gave me a tremendous opportunity to learn how the game works. And that's when, over a period of time, I started to realize, I started to see the global statistics and the wealth disparity. And I remember seeing something that said 3% of the world's population controls 60% of the world's assets. And that disparity was like, wow, what is going on? But the other thing that I realized working in private banks and just working in commercial banks and funds, fund management companies was the majority of people don't have money. Majority, like I'm talking about CFOs, doctors, surgeons, they make decent incomes. But the thing that was the most, I guess, uh, you know, the most revealing fact for me was that the majority of people know nothing about money, regardless of their professional occupations. They have no idea what's going on. And so that, that's when I really started to become intrigued. Hmm. Like, what, how come, like, because growing up, we always had this expectation that if you're a doctor, a surgeon, or even an entrepreneur, you understand money. But then I started to realize that the majority of people have no idea how money management works, how wealth creation works, how risk protection works. And we had seen so many people who had really good incomes, but their net worth was so low relative to their income. And then we had people who were on middle incomes, just average or slightly above average, but had incredible wealth. So that's when I realized that the skill of making money, the skill of keeping money, and the skill of multiplying money are three different skills. Even if you have the first skill, it does not guarantee that you have the second and the third skill. So that got me really fascinated, and that's when I developed an interest to get more and more into advisory. 
And I became supremely confident when I was dealing with upper middle class in Australia, executives. And, and I knew back then that regardless of how much money they're making, it means nothing. At the end of the day, I realized that the true measure of financial success is net worth. It is not revenue. It is not income. It is not profit. It's actually net worth. Mm. And so once that was like a huge thing in my mind. And so I started to aim for a net worth myself. And I thought rather than just running after more money, I need to become very good at what I do with that money when I make it. And so that gave me a lot of confidence. And then about five years ago, I felt that this was the same thing in India. I looked at the statistics in India because right since the time I was a kid, I've been hearing my family say, India is the next superpower, it's the next superpower. Every time I see somebody of Indian origin, whether it's in India or I see them overseas, there's a lot of bravado talk, you know. We've got this person's making this much money, they're doing very well, this person's vice president. And I'm like, so many people are so wealthy in India, so I decided to do some research, right? And it, as it turns out, according to Credit Suisse, they put out an annual report, um, only 7.9 lakh Indians are millionaires. Huh. 7.9 lakhs. Which is around 8.5 crore roughly in INR if you do the math. Yeah. It's about, yeah, exactly yeah. right. So I'm thinking that's a very small number. Like I actually looked at the population of India and I did the, I looked at the percentage and it was like 0.5%. So not even 1% of Indians are yeah. millionaires. Not that being a millionaire is even a big deal anymore. And that's the other thing as well. So that was shocking to me. And then as I was telling you, on this particular trip, and even quite recently in the last six months, I've been hearing a lot of Indians making a lot of money. Not like 10 crores, 50 crores, thousands of crores. Mm. And, it's, and I'm like, how are they making this money? So on Google, I started to read a lot of the reviews from DNA India. And everyone's making 5,000 crores, 10,000 crores. I'm thinking there's a lot of people there. So again, I was a bit skeptical. Mm -hmm. I'm a researcher. You know, in wealth, you have to do a lot of research. So I researched it. And as it turns out, the official number of people who have a net worth of over 100 crores in India is 23,000, which I was sharing with you is 0.0016%. Right. Um, interestingly, this morning, I actually took a screenshot of an article in DNA India, and I just want to show you sure. how people are being deceived. Now, I'm not saying that this is deliberate, but I feel like this is probably an indication of how people don't understand money. So here's an article. Mm -hmm. Again, I'm not disparaging these guys. Of course. This, this Indian man owns a 10,000 crore home. Uh -huh. 10,000 crores. The number doesn't compute on the calculator. Yeah, because where we're sitting right now, the going rate for a house of this size is about 69 crores. Yeah. So I don't know what he's doing. 10,000 crores, if you actually take, so each crore is $200,000. $200, yeah. 10,000 times $200,000. The calculator doesn't even give you a number. It's that big a number. So that's obviously false information because the most expensive property in the world is the Ambani property, which is what, 1.2 billion or 1.5 billion. I guess, yeah. It's grossly exaggerated. And even the same thing when they talk about net worth, most of the times I'm seeing that these articles are talking about unicorn founders or tech founders who have supposedly built this massive company there is no talk about what revenue this company is making, what profits they're making, what their customer base is. It's just about this big company valuation and then it's directly or indirectly tied to the founder's net worth, which is not how it works. You'd be lucky if you get to even keep 10% of the total revenue that you've made. And even for that, you have to be very smart in extracting that money and using it to buy assets. Mm. So I'm skeptical, and then obviously from my observations coming to this country over and over again, I'm seeing 
that the vast majority of people are struggling to even be able to pay off their home or to even buy a car outright. But everybody seems to have this big vision where, you know, I was, I started to say, look, let me teach you how to be a millionaire. And that's something I know, or a multimillionaire. But it's interesting, so many people are like, no, I don't want to be a millionaire, I want to be a billionaire. Some people, some young people, I want to be a trillionaire. So I'm like, where is this coming from? Like, have you actually made a million yet? Because even making a million requires a fair bit of discipline. Yeah, it's right? pretty hard to even it's make $100,000 if you think about it. To keep a million dollars outside your family home is not easy. Okay, it's not easy. Like, I'm not saying that, you know, like some people are attacking me and saying, why are you teaching wealth when you're not an Ambani? Mm. Or, you know, your Tatas are not teaching wealth. How come you're teaching wealth? Well, I'm like, because there's a big gap here. 99.5% of people in this country don't have a path to become a millionaire. Yeah. And yes, go ahead and become a billionaire or a trillionaire if that's what you desire. But, you know, if you haven't made a million yet, you're actually just living in a fantasy. Because that in itself is a fair, significant commitment and requires a bit of discipline. And it requires a working understanding of how different elements of money work. Ron, I want to ask you something. Um, you, earlier you mentioned something about how making money is different, keeping it is different, and multiplying it is different. I think I know a lot of money makers who can make a lot of money. And then some of them are able to save it. They invest in some gold, buy some properties. But the amplification part, where the money sort of works for you, that I haven't met people yet who have sort of figured it out. In fact, I also know several founders and entrepreneurs who make a lot of money, but they just can't keep it or amplify it. And so their bank account perpetually stays the same level, like they're just on a survival mode. What are the three differences? How can one actually do it and grow their wealth? You see, I have this saying, no one gets to make and keep wealth without a plan. Uh, let me give you an example of this. It's easy to buy shares. You can buy a mutual fund, you can buy property. It's not hard. Like if you have a little bit of money, you can buy it. But the money is not made in the buying. The money is usually made in the holding. Like you, you, you have to hold it for a while before the compounding happens and the equity is built. Majority can't hold it because they didn't plan it properly. For example, you might go and buy some shares. You might set up a share portfolio. You might buy some exchange traded funds. You might go and buy a property. Most people will not be able to hold on to it for more than five years. Something will happen. Either an emergency will happen, or there may be an illness. Spouse, family member might need some money. Kids' expenses come up, right? Interest rates may go up. Inflation may go up. So because of a number of those factors, what ends up happening is people buy, and then they sell prematurely. Mm. So the compounding never happens. I mean, you think about the fact, I was asking at my event, how many of you, um, what was the average price of an apartment in Delhi 15 years ago, people were saying 25 lakhs, 30 lakhs. I said, how many of you wish that you had bought 10 of them 15 years ago, right? How many of you wish? And everyone was like, oh, I wish we had bought 10 of these. We, even if we had bought one or two, we'd be happy. But nobody did. Yeah, look at the Indian Sensex as an example. On 19, 1980, the value of the Indian Sensex was 129 points. Three days ago, it was 63,000 points. So the markets have created an enormous amount of money. Real estate market has created an enormous amount of money. Stock market has created an enormous amount of money. People haven't created money. What happened? Because people don't have a plan and they don't stick to anything. And they don't have an emergency fund for emergencies. And they don't have a risk management plan for risk. They don't have a plan when the interest rates go up and inflation goes up, how they're gonna hold on to those properties. If unexpected expenses come up, they don't know how to manage this. This is the part that nobody talks about, right? You have to buy the asset, and then you've got to hold the asset indefinitely. I mean, my, you know, people say buy low, high, sell high. My theory is buy well, never sell. 
because I've seen how intergenerational wealth is created. Remember I was saying to you in yeah. private banks, when I saw a high net worth and ultra high net worth individuals, the only time they sell is if they're going to buy an asset that is far superior to the one that they're selling. They never sell for lifestyle. They never sell for any other reason. They're structured in such a way that they don't have to sell. That no matter what happens, they can ride the market volatility, they can ride out inflation, they can ride out rises in interest rates. The planning from the beginning is designed to buy the best quality assets that they can buy with the money that they have and hold on to it for as long as they can. Right? So intuitively, wealthy people know this. Uh, there was some study done by a Harvard professor. I think his name is Dr. Banfield. I think you can Google this. And he said that the number one predictor of economic mobility, meaning your ability to create economic resources, is long-term orientation. I have found this to be absolutely true. Anyone that has created wealth has done it over 10 to 15 years, never in a shorter time frame. So if you buy stocks and you buy real estate, but you can't hold on to it for the long term, you're not going to make money, no matter how good it is. Uh, you look at Warren Buffett's example, you know, 100 billion net worth. Right. Here is a man who claims he's never made more than a 22% return. I constantly get young men coming into my webinars and seminars telling me that they've had a 40% return, 50%, 60% return. So I said, here's Warren Buffett, never had a 22% return, more than a 22% return. He's 100 billion. You had a 50, 60% return. Where is your net worth? You see? That's the difference. So it's not just about getting a return. It's not just about buying an investment. You have to plan this in a way to increase your net worth. And that requires you to do, make a lot of decisions right from how you manage your cash flow, how you budget, how you manage risk, to how you manage tax, to how you protect your assets and how you preserve your assets. And none of this, unfortunately, is taught in schools and universities. And how do people typically squander their wealth? What do they do wrong? Do they only focus on, so I saw one of your videos, you mentioned people focus on income and spending, right? If I, if I for example, in Indian currency, if I get 50 lakh rupees, I'm gonna think about, um, well, I know I shouldn't be flashy, but a car would be nice or a car would be nice and like now I can take the vacation I've always wanted, right? And then maybe I can save some and you know pay off some debts, but generally that's how it would go because I would feel like today money has come, tomorrow it may not come. So even the, you know, some of the beliefs around money are so broken, but like how do you typically see, because you've seen in your, you know, wealth management career and with private banking, you've seen these individuals who've amassed this much wealth and you've also seen people who, you know, get rich fast and get poor fast. Well, interesting you mentioned that. So right now I've talked about the merits of planning. You've got to plan this. You can't, as I said, I'm going to say this again. No one gets to keep wealth without a plan. You can get rich for a short period of time without a plan, but not in the long term. You mm. need a plan. And you need to look at all aspects. Not how do I just make money? How do I keep it? How do I grow it? And how do I protect it? Mm. Many ways you can lose money. Crashes, interest rates going up, inflation going up, law lawsuits. There's many ways to lose money. I always say, you know, it takes 15 years to build great wealth takes three months to lose it, hmm. right? So you have to have a plan to make sure that you put a firewall around it. But you're right, the, one of the biggest reasons is how we think about money. The, the psychology of money is quite fascinating, I find. I would argue that the majority of people, even when they're making a high income, don't place value on wealth. Hmm. Even if somebody, if you see somebody who's financially motivated to have a lot of income, don't assume that they're wealth oriented or they place value on wealth. Generally, for most people, they want more money because they value spending, not because they value wealth. Mm. So when you value wealth, you're not interested in spending money. You actually enjoy the activity of seeing your asset base grow. 
you're driven by that. That's the motivational driver. Yeah. A lot of people who like to make a lot of money don't like to see things grow. They just want it because they value something else. They value luxury. They value education. They value experiences. They value holidays. They value cars. They value lifestyle. So they don't actually value wealth. What they value is what that income will give them. When you're a wealth creator, you make this money to see your asset base grow. You naturally are disciplined and motivated in this area of seeing your nest egg grow, right? Mm. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't spend money. I mean, I'm the same, you know, I'm, for me, I'm not a guy who came from a, my immediate family didn't have wealth. Mm. So for me, when I saw money, I wanted to spend because I have been deprived of those things. And I used to look up to wealthy people and say, you know, one day I'm gonna have this car, one day I'm gonna have a Swiss watch collection, I'm gonna wear these $3,000, $5,000 suits, I'm gonna do this stuff. But here is how I do it. First of all, I love lifestyle, and I know that that's a weakness of mine. Mm. But I'm also a wealth creator. Some people are only wealth creators, so they don't spend money. But I like spending money as well. So how I do with this is I make money. First, a lot of the money has to go on living expenses. Everybody has to pay gas, electricity, food, all of that sort of stuff. So that goes. The second part doesn't go on lifestyle. The second part goes on investments. Mm. The third part goes on lifestyle. So whatever's left goes on lifestyle. So if I want more lifestyle, I just need to make more money at the front end. So after I've paid my living expenses and I've made allocation for my future, now whatever's left, I can splurge it. But what people are doing is after living expenses, they're going straight on lifestyle expenses. Sometimes Some people are even worse than that. They go lifestyle first and they don't even have money. That's why they get into credit card debt. Yeah or they owe money to their family members because they are now prioritizing lifestyle over living. So for me, it's like living, investments, then lifestyle. And I will not deprive myself of lifestyle. So here is what most people will do. I want a lifestyle, but I can't afford it. Why? Because I don't have the income. My mentality is very different. I want the lifestyle, I need to make more income. So I need to upskill myself so I can make more income. So I've made provisions for my living expenses, which I have to. Now I've put money aside. Every single year I put money aside to grow my net worth. Now I've done that. I've taken care of my responsibility now and for the future, now I can splurge. And so if I wanna buy a $30,000 Rolex, I just need to make an extra 50, $60,000 at the top end that once I've allocated the, every, all of my responsibilities, I've taken care of my responsibilities, now I can buy it. Yeah. That's how I think. And I find this a really bizarre behavior in people when they say, you know, I don't make enough money, sorry. Well, you have to understand if you don't make enough income, that's generally a reflection of the fact that the market doesn't place value on your skills. And you have to be humble enough to admit that. And so for me, the starting point is if I'm not making as much money as I would like, there is a problem. The market doesn't perceive enough value in my skill. You know, my expectations are here, but the market wants to pay me this much. So I need to upgrade my skills to match my expectations. Mm. That's what I do. That's what I've always done. Um, but most people are like, you know, I don't make enough money, so I can't afford it, so I'm just going to settle for this. And I'm like, well, you know, income is a consequence of skill. And if your skill is getting you to survival, then that's what the market sees your, your skill level at. And this is, you know, people don't like that because nobody wants to feel like they're responsible for their financial situation. Everybody wants to blame destiny or God. Everybody yeah. wants to blame luck. Nobody wants to take responsibility, but the starting point of financial success is to take 100% responsibility for your financial situation. Yeah, I read this uh, book by Paul Graham, Hackers and Painters, in which he talks about wealth. He said, 
we still assume wealth to be something that must be given to us by parents or authorities just like in school or like other basically all people who are institutionalized always need someone of authority to give them money they don't mm-hmm. think that it can be created on their own um something you mentioned earlier which uh, sort of struck me by surprise is um you said that you know you spend the last part on lifestyle but what if someone has say $4000 $5000 i mean there's a lot of young audiences also watching right and they want certain things but they have they're not trained to live frugally like they haven't been through hard times it's not the great depression anymore everything's so available it's all feminized right so in that way learning frugality or learning to be stoic with your money is not something that comes easily to a lot of people right and it doesn't come easily to me yeah it doesn't even now no i told that's the, and that's why i want to be completely brutally honest with you right frugality is the number one strategy that most financial experts will teach and that works for a lot of people it doesn't work for somebody like me who is lifestyle orientated um i'm i like the material things i don't deny it i want to have a good life you know as i say i i i love everything that god has made but i also love everything that man has made Mm. and um, you know i recently said that you know the best things in life are free but the second best are very expensive so i don't want to live frugally i don't want to live frugally right i if you are not if you're a minimalist that might work for you yeah but if you're a maximalist like me who really believes in enjoying life to its fullest i know people like that don't feel guilt or shame about that don't feel don't let society condition you to settle for less mm. what you need to do is make more and manage more right and that's something that we can influence because your income is a byproduct of your skill mastery mm. your networks your personality right and how hard it is to replace you all those four factors are in your control as an individual you can influence those four factors right how do it is to replace me most mastery i have in my skill set better personality i have the higher the more extensive networks i have the more i can make money mm. so why should i restrict myself and be frugal that's my Frug, frugality i'm not saying frugality has no merit but to me that's the last case option yeah. first case option is let me see if i can make more money to have the lifestyle i want as well if i absolutely can't which i don't believe that i can't i mm. always believe that there are a number of levers i can pull in the marketplace at any given point in time to increase my income why won't i do that first yeah. so we have to we have to be careful that we don't use frugality as the first starting point let's let be the last case resort if nothing else works frugality should be the option problem with frugality is we're not really stretching ourselves right from a skills point of view yeah. if frugality becomes your default option then where is the incentive to stretch yourself from a skills point of view you're never going to enjoy anything then that's right and we have a limited time on this planet you know i want i people say you know the car is a car and i go no it isn't unless you've driven a bentley around the corner you don't know the difference right yeah. you 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 can say that only when you have an experience those things if you if you the, the, a cheap wine and an expensive wine there is a difference right and so i want to experience life in its fullest form and for me the first resort always is i'm not making enough money i need to upskill myself and i need to bring in more money and then if i really can't do that which has never happened up until now hmm. then i'll look at frugality yeah. right even if i have to practice a slight frugality it's fine but i don't want to live frugally my whole life yeah and th- i mean i clearly see now that your ideas around wealth are super clear 
and I'm enjoying this conversation as a consequence because there are things that I'm learning in my age group at my income level which are very helpful uh, because I have lived a lot like James Dean you know live live fast die young kind of kind of deal and I'm I'm now seeing that you know as my 30s approach I should also look at wealth the way you are describing and yet there's a video of you that went viral about where you said money is not everything and people just went ballistic uh, I just wanted to know what is it that people misunderstood it was actually not I what had happened was I had had an event I had spoken at an event and I had talked about the hypocrisy of people when people say money is not everything right hmm. and so after I said that I had a few guys from the audience and they said we really want to take you out for a drink I love they said we loved it we are dealing with this stuff in our family in our societies can we take you for a drink so I was they took me to the bar we were having a drink together and they asked me to expand on that point so I did and what I was saying was it's interesting if you talk about health you'll never get people saying health is not everything mm. if you talk about family you'll never get people say family is not everything if you talk about love people will never say love is not everything talk about money what do you get money is not everything yeah why we never said money is everything but what's this why this response why is it that we can't talk about money without somebody saying money is not everything where does this come from because we don't do it nothing's everything my point was nothing's everything money's not everything but health is not everything either family's not everything either right food is not everything either all of these things have their own place right all of these things are important but why is it that only when we approach this topic of money there has to be a few people there have to be a few people who always care their response is but money's not everything so what i was talking about is this particular response when somebody's talking about money and wealth and you find yourself thinking or saying money is not everything you know why you're doing that because you haven't figured out how to make it yeah and so what you're trying to do is you're justifying your failure in the area of money rather than admitting that you're failing you're actually using a positive affirmative statement to justify your failure by saying money is not important i'm not money driven anyway which is actually excuse my language load of crap because mm. the vast majority of people who don't have money if i give them a million dollar check today the majority will take it if i give them a free holiday the majority will take it they want it but they're lying to themselves and the self deception i have seen in this in the area out of all the areas i've seen self deception runs very high in the area of money mm. for some reason we are so traumatized by this topic right uh, by not having money that rather than admitting that there is a problem and i need to fix this problem we start to rationalize our statements and say well i'm not money minded anyway money is not that important money doesn't make you happy and what we're really doing is we're starting to deceive ourselves mm. and over a period of time we'll realize that yes you're right money is not important i agree but here's the problem everything that is important requires money you can't get good healthcare without money you can't contribute to your parents well-being without money you can't retire them without money you can't send your kids to school you can't get a mentor you can't get the best education without money you can't get organic food without money right so but why do we do this why is why, why, where is this need this incessant need to defend yourself the moment somebody talks about money and wealth why do we feel the need to justify by using the statement that money is not everything and as i as i called out the hypocrisy of people who do this guess what happened people got so triggered that i was calling out the hypocrisy that they started to abuse me and started to attack me and you know what they did they proved exactly what i was saying they completely proved what i've been saying that there is a real issue around this people are hypocrites around this money subject 
But the problem is this, they're going to be affected because the more hypocrisy you have around this area, the less you're going to fix it. And if you don't fix it, eventually the repercussions are this. Let me explain mm. to you why this is an important area to fix. If you Google the life expectancy of an Indian 100 years ago, it was 25. The average Indian died at 25 because of famine, war, disease. Today, the average life expectancy is 70, with a lot of Indians living well into their 90s. So if, there, if people retire at 55, and you're, not going to, and you're going to be alive till 90, that's a long time. Yeah. That's 35 years, right? 35 years of living without an active income. If you have not created wealth but while you're working, you are going to be dependent on your family. And you're going to be dependent on the government for assistance. And, the, and here's my question to you. Do you think your family is going to be able to look after you for 35 years? And do you think the government's going to pay your pension for 35 years? So what you're going to see, and this is coming, you're going to see hundreds of millions of people who were too busy justifying that money is not important. And they right now, whilst they've got an income, they've got an opportunity to create wealth for the future, but they're not. They're not prioritizing this important area. When they get to retirement, even if they've got a good standard of living now, you're going to see a significant drop. Now, here's the issue. As we get older, our human capital is depleting. Our mental and physical exertion, you know, our ability to exert ourselves mentally and physically is diminishing as we're getting older. So it's wise that as your human capital is depleting, increase your financial capital to compensate for that. Right. What you're going to see now, for the first time in the history of the world, is more and more and more old people who are very poor. You're going to see the natural decline in human capital, which is inevitable, but you're also going to see a decline in financial capital because they haven't saved enough, they haven't invested enough. What are the consequences of that? Well, the consequences of that is a life without dignity. You are old. You have to be sitting in front of a TV the whole time. You can't do anything else. You can't afford anything else. You can't afford to play golf. You can't afford to go out and have dinner out. You're not going to be able to do that because you have such a limited amount of money, and that money has to last you for 35 years. Yeah. Gone are the days where people live 10 years after retirement. Longevity trends, medical advances have resulted in a society where people are living a long time. And you're living, where's the money going to come from? That's why wealth creation is the wisest thing you can do. And the only time you have to create wealth is while you've got an active income. You can't create wealth once the income stops. And so I find it really bizarre that practically nobody talks about it and nobody knows it, which I attribute to the failure of our education system. I'm not blaming the individual. Uh -huh. I'm holding them responsible to fix the problem. Who I'm really pointing a finger at is the institutions. What have they been doing? Like, how come most people can tell you the difference between amoeba and bacteria, or sorry, virus and bacteria, and they can tell you what an amoeba is or what the capital of Angola is, but they can't tell you the basics of money management. So this is the analogy that I use. You know, do you, what sport do you play? Do you play cricket? I used to, not anymore. Okay. Here's a question for you. Let's just say you're a fantastic batsman or a bowler, but you don't understand the rules of cricket and you don't know how to read the scoreboard. Do you think you would be a great cricketer? No, because I have to rely on others to tell me if I'm good or not. Yeah. I would you just be a scoreboard. raw specimen that others would have to decode or educate. And you're going to break the rules, right? Yeah. And you're going to be potentially be kicked out of the game. Now, think about every individual that has an income is paying taxes and has expenses as being in the money game. So let's just mm -hmm. say there's a game called money. We're all playing it. Majority of us don't know how to read the scoreboard. We don't have no idea what our net worth is. Majority of us don't understand the rules of money. 
And I say majority, I actually mean, uh, it's not an exaggerated statement, I would say as high as 99%. Mm. Now the question is, how come? I mean, why do we go to school? So we can go to university. Why do we go to university? So we can get a job. Why do we get a job? So we can be financially independent. But nobody is. So what is this education system for exactly? And that's why I, asked, I started questioning it. I was, had a lot of skepticism about this, and I thought, what are we, like 16 years in institutions, 12 years in school, three, four years in university, and you come out not understanding how the economy works mm. and how things work. And so I really, this shocks me, because we're in 2023, oh. and people have no idea about one of the most important commodities in the world, money. Last night I was sitting with a friend on his, he lives in a big apartment complex, and he's like, I want to take you to the terrace. Never been there. Uh, but it had those dingy, dingy st stairs that sort of, sort of climb over with all fours, right? Propped up against a wall. Went there and he was telling me all the cities you can see from that skyline. And then because the view is massive, obviously you think differently, right? Um, and I said, you know what, man? It's good that we're doing well in life, but I have to say school was not a waste of time. This is unrelated to our conversation. Like it was not because you know, it is something that you're passionate about, so I'm telling you now. And we were just talking about all the hours we spent in assemblies, all the times we spent in the, the 45 minute classes around physics, chemistry, geography, social science, all of that jazz. Uh, and we could just not in any way rationalize what we did in school beyond competing in games on, oh, well, school is a small ecosystem. So there are some rules. If you learn the rules, you can be a teacher's kiss ass. And if you bend the rules a little bit, you can be a rebel, but also sort of win. But in a very small environment, the moment you get out of school or college, you end up in a situation where the rules are unclear. It's all uncertain. No one knows what the fuck they're doing. And so now you just follow the safe path and you do like exactly what you said. I have a bachelor's, now let me get a master's, then eventually get a job. And then what? Well, then, I don't know, just live. Or get a PhD. Or get a just PhD, just, yeah. you know, just, just spend more time in institutions because that is where you feel the safest because the world outside is dangerous and institutions offer you protection and some fake dignity, you know, that allows you to live your life and be a respected member of the community. And, and you're, so, you're so right because that sense of security that you get is so temporary and short-lived. And that's what people don't understand. They're really trading not only growth, they're trading and exchanging their future for this short-term perceived security, which is not even real. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that education has no place. Mm -hmm. Skills-based education, professional education, academic education has a place. It teaches you some basics about life and how things work and teaches you commitment and sticking to a curriculum. But practically, I made a case for practically every skill that is required to become successful, not get to get a survival, because mm. we, we acknowledge the fact that education in India has taken people from poverty into survival. Of course. But there are two other stages. There is success and there's significance. Education, traditional education, will not get you to success and significance, only for a very small minority, less than 1% of people. Any other industry that has a 1% success rate would not exist. Customers would shut it down. But education is still thriving because it is well supported as a system. So we're not saying remove the system. What we're saying is let's complement the system with some basic, we've identified three different elements that need to be integrated with this education system to provide that holistic blend of skills that people need. And we, you know, if you look at the school and university or corporate system as well, I think corporate system is an extension of this. To me, yeah. 
school, university, corporate are basically all aligned. Mm. It almost appears to me that it's possible that potentially corporates have a lot of say in designing of curriculums at universities and schools to create a future workforce for them. I wouldn't say, look, let's not, I mean, people might say this is, how do you know? But I'm, I'm just saying, I'm asking the question. Hmm. I don't think it's out of the question. Um, so the thing is, we, I looked at all the skills, like let's just talk about how you are rewarded in the institutional system, schools, universities, and, and, and corporations. Number one, conformity is promoted. Yes. In entrepreneurship, it's the opposite. You have to be somebody who is individualistic. Collaboration is discouraged. It's called cheating. In entrepreneurship, you can't succeed without collaboration, mm -hmm. right? Following rules is encouraged in, on this side, institutional side. Breaking rules is encouraged. We call it innovation or disruption on the entrepreneurial side, right? So there are a number of reasons why you know, a, a, an independent thinking person would at least question what is going on on this side. Like if you're not thinking, there's already a problem. Like uh, to me, the biggest wake up call should be that hundreds of millions of people sign up for the system without questioning it. Like to me, I mean, if that's not indoctrination, then what is, right? Isn't the whole idea of education to keep you in this space of constantly asking questions? Mm -hmm. We've stopped asking questions. We just follow and the average person makes decisions based on, well, if everybody else is doing it, it yeah. must be true. Uh, except that historically, that's not how things have worked. Uh, majority tends to be usually wrong. So my question then becomes, you know, why is that happening? And then I look at, I, I came up with a list of skills that I feel have been instrumental in my psychological, emotional, financial, and commercial growth and spiritual growth. And I asked myself, how come I didn't learn any of these in school? So let me give you an example. Emotional regulation, which is emotional intelligence, hmm. critical thinking, decision making, risk management, money management, investing, persuasion, marketing, selling, negotiation, leadership, influence, branding. I mean, I can just name a lot of these skills. Some of them we touched on in my, when I did my MBA degree, which was self-funded. I did it much later in life. Uh, I felt that the, the degree was equipping me for corporate management, not to be a, a critical thinking. Or a business administrator, the way it's, I mean, it's, it's titled That's MBA, exactly right? Exactly yeah. right, exactly right. So, so I became a bit skeptical. And uh, what, I, what was interesting to me is that you can't ask anyone questions in this area without triggering people. The debate is immediately suppressed, right? And that is not a good sign because you know that where you know, freedom of speech is being discouraged, why is it being discouraged? Why, why can't we question, like I'd love to interview the educational board and go, what is the idea here exactly? And how come you have in your country where you know, in India, 99.5% will not become millionaires. Hmm. What is going on? How is that acceptable? Who's taking responsibility for this? You know, how do we grow the GDP of this country if, if individual productivity is so low? Um, and look, the solution is not helping people and giving money, as you were saying before. The problem with that is when you start to divide wealth, you bring the standard of living down for everybody because you're reducing the total amount of wealth that's available. If you multiply it, that's how you grow the economy, that's how you grow the GDP. That's why India has a population which is four and a half, five times America's, but we have a GDP that's not even one-tenth of America's. Right. Because we can't continue to just help, 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 help. It doesn't actually solve the problem anyway. What we need to do is lift, elevate, upskill people, rather than going, we'll just give you some money and handouts, yeah. 
It's robbing them of their dignity. It's reinforcing dependence. It's not upskilling them. Market needs more upskilling. But I, I tell you, you have this conversation. It's a controversial conversation. And you always get misunderstood. And it's like, but why? What is something about this conversation that people can't accept? Because we need to accept that if India has to progress from this point on, we have to at least start asking questions. So that's why I wrote this book. And my book was called Indoctrinated, How the Conventional Education System Perpetuates Conformity, Mediocrity, and Indistinguishability. And I make a case for the fact that, look, this is the system we're working with. And that system is only equipping you to become an employee for a corporate or for the government. And so you remain in the institutional um, framework. And it does produce a level of close-mindedness, I have seen, mm. where they're not even open, they're not even seeking. But Ron, doesn't the world need employees? Is there, is there not a place for employees or people who don't want to be entrepreneurs who just want to do this? <laughs> Look, it's interesting. People start to ask me, you know, well, how, can, you know can, how can everybody be an entrepreneur? That's not the point. The point is, when, you, when we were signing up for a degree, when we decided to get a job, did we ever ask ourselves this question, how can everybody be an employee? We never did, right? No. We, we were never concerned about the oversupply of employees or graduates, were we? So why are we concerned about the oversupply of entrepreneurs? How come this question only comes up when we bring up the topic of entrepreneurship? Prior to the Industrial Revolution, everybody was an entrepreneur. It's not so much about becoming an entrepreneur, it's about having the entrepreneurial mindset. The entrepreneurial mindset is that even if I'm in a job, I'm actually in control of my career and my financial destiny. Mm. That's the mindset we're talking about. So when you don't have that mindset, you are abdicating control to somebody else and you're taking a passive seat, back seat in your own financial future. So you don't have to become an entrepreneur, but you do need to be in the front seat, drive your career and financial future forward by having the employee mindset. You are creating a mindset of entitlement where you're going, I should just be getting paid for my tenure and for my time, not for the value and the outcomes and the results that I produce. And so that breeds a level of, uh, that, that diminishes productivity and performance, right? So what we're saying is if, if everybody wants, if you love India, as a lot of people claim that they do, you want the country to prosper. Mm -hmm. If you want the country to prosper and progress, every individual should be responsible for their own productivity and performance and not take a passive stance on employment. And you don't have to have, you, don't, you can be in a nine to five, but don't have a nine to five mindset. It doesn't work. And yeah. especially now where you are, you know, like, there are a lot of extreme views out there. Some people say, you know, it's the biggest scam in the world. You work 40 hours a week for 40 years of your life to retire on 40% of your salary. That's if you're lucky. Most people don't even get to that point. And we accept it. Why do we accept it? Because everybody else accepts it. So yeah. where is the critical and independent thinking here? Yeah, there's a guy called Joseph Piper. He wrote, he wrote this book, uh, Leisure, the, the Basis of Civilization. And he was talking about how people have become workers because there was nothing better to do. Because it's a consequence of, well, what do we do with our time? Well, let's just work. And then workaholism became this thing that is, um, people pride themselves upon being workaholics or they work 40 hours a week, 50 hours a week without output. And he said, leisure is embedded. So if you really make money, you can have all the leisure you want. But then people who make a lot of money don't know what to do with their time. And so they just keep working nonstop. And I think a lot of this, 40-hour, 50-hour mindset also comes from they don't know when to start working. Like, do you think that, especially because you met a lot of these uh, multi-generational, intergenerational wealth uh, individuals, old money and new money, 
you think they did things differently? Do you think they worked less? Do you think they were smarter with their money and had more time to say sip on cocktails and you know enjoy the beaches, all of that jazz? I have never seen anyone, first generation wealth creators who have built either a significant enterprise or created significant net worth who were not massively into their work. Okay. I've never seen it. So uh, there's a bit of a movement emerging right now about peace and happiness and take a step back. Uh, I'm very skeptical about that movement because it's very, the benefits of that are going to be very short lived. Okay. Uh, in the long term, you know, if you really consider the fact that after oxygen, water, and food, money is the most important commodity. Um, if you don't take care of that now, and you can't create wealth by just working a normal 40-hour week with average skills, it's not gonna happen. Mm. Um, I have this expectation now that if you're gonna build an enterprise uh, in the beginning and you're starting from scratch, just by because the sheer complexity of mastering entrepreneurship uh, and the responsibility it places on you, 40, 50 hours is not enough. Uh, but it's but the thing is, if you're picking something that is in alignment with your values and you're inspired by, you're not going to have burnout. Burnout, yeah. I believe, is not a consequence of hard work. It's a consequence of working hard on the wrong things. So if you're inspired, I mean, I do massive hours. My immune system is very strong. In fact, it's a lot stronger than when I was doing 40-hour weeks in a job mm. that didn't inspire me. Um, I have seem to have a lot more energy. I'm a lot more switched on. Uh, these things have kind of naturally occurred because what I'm doing, I can see the values alignment. I'm inspired by it, but also see where it's taking me in the future. I can see the long vision, right? Um, and and I and I just think that uh, there's a big difference in being busy and productive. You know, I as an entrepreneur, you don't get rewarded for being busy. Nobody gives mm -hmm. a damn how busy you are. I can put all this input. If I don't produce an output, I don't get to live the life I want. Mm. So that brings out a different level of skill as well because I'm responsible now. Nobody's gonna give me a, a, a payment check every month. Um, and you know, this is why we created the Indian Lion movement because you know, we had people like, what's this Indian Lion thing? What's mm. this rubbish? <laughs> and I said, look, have you ever watched an animal documentary on Discovery Channel where you've seen a lion or an equivalent animal, a predatorial animal running after a weaker animal to kill it and eat it. And my question, and I did this at a live event, and I said, when you see that, which animal do you feel empathy for? And naturally, most people would feel empathy for the weaker animal. I said, look, I feel empathy for the lion, and I'll tell you why. The lion, the lion doesn't get to eat until it takes risk, right? The, the other weak animal has grass everywhere. It doesn't have to hunt. Right. Right? It's been given an abundance of food choices. The lion has to take a risk, use his skill so that he can eat. Every meal practically will require risk and skills. And I equated that to the entrepreneurial mindset, right? So I'm like, everybody wants to be the lion in the food chain. We all want to be leaders. We all want to have power. We all want to have influence. We all want to have authority. We do, because life at the bottom is not great. Right. Without power, you feel useless. You feel like you don't have resources. You feel manipulated, controlled pushed around. Who wants that? We all want to be in charge of our financial destiny. In a way, we all want to be lions. But we want, we don't want to learn to do what the lion does. So I said, if you really look at the quality of a lion, lion's not the biggest, not the strongest animal in the jungle. Um, why is it the king? Why is it known as the king? It's known as the king because it's fiercely independent, it's incredibly courageous, it's highly skilled, and it doesn't become a part of the herd. 
at the subconscious level, we all want to be lions and lionesses. We want to take charge of our destiny, financial destiny, life destiny. We want to be the captains of our ship, right? We want to be the kings of our empire. All of us do. Nobody likes being at the bottom. We've just, we've, we've accepted it. Mm. But are you going to do what the lion does? And, you know, interestingly, because my, my fascination, my most fascination is about wealth and prosperity of nations, you actually look at the world's most prosperous nations and you ask yourself, what is the difference between them and the countries that are not that prosperous? Is it population size? No. China and India have the same population size, a similar population size. Is it culture? No. Culture is not the biggest driver. What is it? Is it education? India's got a lot of education, right? What is it? What is the skill? Is it youth? India's got a lot of youth. Why is it not prosperous? It actually comes down to one thing, risk appetite. We have a very subdued risk appetite. So the risk appetite is required for, for a country to be prosperous. Uh, and in cultures where risk is encouraged and failure is celebrated, those countries have a better chance at prosperity compared to countries where failure is humiliated and mm. risk appetite is subdued. Oh, we love to humiliate failure here. We make little public shams of people who fail. Yes. And the issue with that is then it scares people so much. And then they, once you start operating from fear, you're not going to be creative, right? You're not going to go for the big, de big decisions. You're going to start to settle and you're going to start to compromise uh, because you're afraid of that public humiliation and judgment. So, but that affects the country because if millions of people are thinking like that, the country doesn't prosper. We have the youth, you have, we have the education here, we have the ambition here, but we don't have the risk appetite to match it. Mm. So the country will not be as prosperous compared to a country that may have less population, less education, but a higher risk appetite. So that's how the Indian Lion Movement was born. We were like, you know, let's be honest here, majority of us would like to live like a lion, be in charge of our own destiny, live on our own terms. But that can't happen unless you also do what the lion does, right? And that comes with accepting and embracing risk and managing risk and mitigating risk, but at least have the desire to do things that are risky because that's how you build skills. If you avoid right. risk, you avoid skills. Yeah, I, I, when I meet a lot of entrepreneurs, they always have to show their corporate social responsibility and their service to people more than their financial acumen or how much money they've made because people seem to shame you when you do that. It's sadly that our role models or our in, in, forefathers after the independence happen to be people like Mah uh, Mohan Das Karamchand Gandhi, who's known for his uh, sacrifice and living very frugally and all of that. Somehow that is permeated far down into everyone's subconscious where he who strikes out of the community and makes money is the black sheep until he makes money for everyone else and treats it as service. Whereas in some other Western countries, right? Like if you make money, amazing. You know, you can talk about it freely. Here even the discussion of money should come with, oh, but look at look at what how much service I am doing for the world. Is it is it it's almost as if the the act of making money is inherently evil unless it is done in, in the way of charity. Yes. Um, interestingly, though, Australia is very similar to India from that perspective. Yeah. Culturally, they're very different. So Australia is not like America. In Australia, we have a term called the tall poppy syndrome. A tall poppy is a plant. When it grows above the other plants, you cut it off its neck. So the tall poppy syndrome basically means if you become more successful than society, there's a lot of people who drag you down. They will actually criticize you. And I think similar things can happen in India as well. America's not like that, but that's yeah. why 40% of the world's millionaires come from America. They celebrate achievement, failure, expansion. So do the Chinese. 
Um, but we have this in Australia, and Australia is also becoming poorer as a country. I recently read that the average median income is about 53,000, and the cost of living in a capital city, now you need 316,000, six times the average income. That's crazy. So average Aussies are under massive stress, can't pay off their mortgages, can't send their kids to private school, can't have a uh, comfortable retirement, uh, and they're too busy. A lot of people, like in India and Australia, also, money's not important, wealth is not important, I don't need to work. You know, I'm happy the way I am. Happiness is more important. Mm. But we don't say that with, as I was saying, we don't talk it. We don't talk like that when we talk about love or health. We only talk like this when we're talking about money. And they, and I, I just question this this kind of mentality. So, so you're right. That's that's definitely an issue. And um, you know, people, when you when people are saying, you know, you should help me because you're successful, you're taking on the consciousness of a helpless person. You're becoming a victim in society, basically, rather than becoming a victor. You have a dream of being a victor, but you act like a victim, mm. right? And so we have now, and so the problem then you have is, if you have more victims than victors in a country, the country is not pros prospering and progressing as much as it can, because people at the top now can't just keep growing. They have to now have their wealth, as you were saying, it needs to flow down to people at the bottom in some way, otherwise they're made to feel guilt and shame. And these people can sit here, not feel any guilt and shame for sitting here and being entitled to handouts. So we've really got it backwards. People, and you, and you look how, you know, this goes back to even our entertainment culture. How many times have you seen a Bollywood movie where the good guy was financially responsible or wealthy? No, the good guy is always evil and rich. That's generally how it goes. The rich guy is always bad guy, right? Yeah. And are very financially motivated or rich. And the good guy is financially irresponsible, doesn't give a damn about money. Yeah. Right? Happy go lucky. Yeah. Happy go lucky. Tramp of the street, generally, yeah. So, what that does is you're watching these movies, and this is the same thing in Hollywood as well. You're watching these movies, either you're an American kid or you're an Indian kid, you're watching these movies over and over and over again. You're, you're unconsciously creating positive associations with poverty and negative associations with wealth. Who wants to be the bad guy who everybody judges? Thank God for Iron Man. Yeah, yeah. And Batman. Yes, there's some exceptions, yeah. but largely you've seen, right? Even yeah. There was an article on Forbes that said, America's favorite villain is always the rich guy. Yeah. And it is true. So we are conditioned through societal pressures, media, culture, education, to be mediocre. Mm -hmm. But deep down, we, we never lose our admiration for people at the top. But it makes us feel envy, so we try and drag, drag them down. We make them feel guilt and shame, when really, mm -hmm. If you're ever going to feel guilt and shame, I'm not a big advocate of those feelings anyway, they're low vibrational frequencies. But if you're ever going to feel guilt and shame, feel guilt and shame about mediocrity, non-performance, temporarily, not always, because yeah. at least that's gonna help you change your behaviors. Why are you making people at the top uh, feel guilt and shame? Especially for those who actually first generation, who've got there through yeah. hard work, performance, productivity, and creativity. But that's the world we live in today, and, and that's why statistics are already reflecting that by showing us the wealth disparity. And that problem can't be fixed unless we fix the psychology around wealth first. Ron, talking about the psychology of wealth, you obviously are a member of the new wealth generation, right? You've all also met people from old money, like we often say. It's an existing hypothesis that I've been sort of working on thinking about how do members of each class differ and what are their similarities? But since you obviously are exposed to these individuals far more than I am, what have you noticed about old money that they still get it right? Things they still get right and things they get wrong. What about new money that they still get right and they still get wrong? Look, people who have been brought up with money, 
they don't revere money as much mm. right? because it was never missing in their lives. So they don't typically place the value on wealth, like value on money, like a lot of us do. Um, the, and so they, they're more about growth. They want to expand. They want to build something. The dining table conversations are different. If you sit down with a high net worth individual, they're talking about investing, buying assets, business. But, the, it's, but it, it's, they're not thinking about money. It's quite interesting. They're just thinking about expansion. Mm. You know, and, and it's interesting that their children, they, I, this is implied. It's not that they said explicitly. But I believe that when they're looking at their children, they want their children starting where they finished. Mm. Whereas the middle class is making their children start where they started. There's a big difference, right? So I do think that wealthy people, old wealth people, do think about intergenerational wealth. Uh, the ones who are smart at training their children, instilling values in them and skills in them, are generally able to increase the net worth over successive generations. But not everybody. A lot of intergenerational wealth is lost by the time it gets to the third generation. Mm. So. <clears throat> old money basically means you know you're not as lifestyle oriented but that's also because a lot of lifestyle is taken care of security is taken care of you have over generations experienced the finer things in life me on the other hand i had money i'd never had the things so i wanted to go and buy them and i wanted to experience them i like the bling factor hmm. and i admit it right but but at least i'm glad that because of my experience in the wealth space i first prioritized future before i prioritized lifestyle if i didn't have that and I had all the income that I made, I would have probably self-sabotaged my wealth opportunities as well. Yeah. So that's why I talk about this ability. I, I encourage people to have a lifestyle. I would say, look, have a great lifestyle. Don't be frugal, but just make sure your skill level matches. I think that's the main difference. Yeah. If you have new money, you have a much higher tendency to want to look rich rather than be rich. A lot of wealth at the old wealth is actually quite invisible. You don't see it in lifestyle. Uh, unless you really get into the intimate circle. It's very guarded. It's very. It's not out there for public viewing. When it's new wealth, you actually kind of want to show off a little yeah. bit. Because You're always building in public. Yeah, you do. Because you know why? Because it's like, it gives you a sense of, like, I made it. Right? I want to yeah. share it. I want to let people know that I made it. There's a sense of achievement. It's unfortunate that people don't share your enthusiasm. But um, I've gone through this myself. And I go, I'm, I'm glad I've made it. You know, I, I want to share it with the world. But it's not coming from a bad, bad place. It's not coming from trying to make people feel yeah. bad about themselves. It's like, hey, I've made it. You can make it too. Yeah. Have you watched Succession? No. The show Succession. It's based on a few multimedia mogul families and the issue of like they control the world's news and all the networks and everything. And uh, the father is sort of ailing, the patriarch. So he needs to hand, hand over the empire to the next generation. It's a really good show. Uh, that I think you will like because a lot of the show is about how, you know, intergenerational wealth kids who have billions of dollars think about money and think about, they all, all they think about is expansion and control, whereas the new money guys are always, how do I sneak into the top and get my piece? Yes. Um, I did want to touch upon something because I often find that your delivery style is uh, brutally honest and uh, as a result, people listen more. Um, there seems to be there's no frills around what you say, you say directly. And I'm just wondering, is this something, because there's a lot of manosphere counting out, counting out there with the annotates and the Petersons and everyone else telling young men how they should behave or how they should act. Uh, the word masculinity is thrown around like a buzzword quite often. It's become quite the rage for young men to look internet to the internet and see older men giving them advice. But I do think there is substantial merit for at least understanding 
the values of masculinity, especially when it comes to making wealth, because if you're very frivolous or very, you know, dilly-dallying with your money, you can lose it. But masculinity teaches you self-control. So like generally, what would you say about that? In 2013, I started a movement called the Successful Male. Okay. Now, this is way before Jordan Peterson or Andrew Tate or any of these guys. In 2013, the idea came to me because I felt there was no initiative that was enabling men to become, to develop holistically. Uh, that's emotionally, in relationships, financially, psychologically, and so on and so forth. And obviously, we had to have an element of masculinity. And I, I, my, my question was, let's redefine masculinity, because we had a lot of really masculine men in the 60s and 70s, but they were not emotionally evolved and spiritually evolved. Today, we have a lot of men who may come across as very emotionally and spiritually evolved, but they're not very masculine. Yeah. Right? So has, is it possible, perhaps, that we've gone from one extreme to another? The pendulum's gone from being really masculine, hairy-chested men, Marlboro-smoking men, right? The guys yeah. who would be extremely aggressive, they would defend and protect, had deep voices, to now you've got men who are now wearing skinny jeans, and nothing wrong with that, but what I'm saying is, mm. they're not really driven by acquisition, they're not really driven by... There's also just low testosterone. There's also that, because they're not working out as much. They're more Correct. feminized by culture. Correct. They have to be operate in more in safe spaces, all of that. Correct. So I guess I have a perspective because I was born in a patriarchal society, which is India. And then I moved to Australia, which is, I believe it to be one of the most feminist societies in the world. And I have seen the impact of that. And I think over a period of time, I became quite feminized myself in terms of became a feminist man who was constantly instilled with this belief that women's rights are important and they're absolutely important. But when and, when, when and women are equal, the same. And over, I've now gone back to a traditional view, um, which is quite interesting, my whole mental journey that I've gone through. So at first it was like men and women are the same. So far, it was first in a patriarchal society, men and women are not the same, then men and women are the same, then women are actually really better than men. They're now going, no, hey, men and women are very different. So that's mm. the journey that I have taken now. Um, where what we are seeing in the Western society is that there is definitely the feminism movement, which is all about, uh, it's not just about advocating for women's rights. It's actually now, um, it's actually demonizing men. Yeah. So it's gone to an extreme where a masculine man who takes control is confident, is assertive, and is fulfilling his masculine destiny by having a natural desire to build and conquer yeah. and create and defend and protect is now seen kind of toxic. Yeah, he's labeled as a threat. <clears throat> because, he's labeled as a threat. Because he's not gossiping with everyone else. Correct. So, they, so what we're now seeing is men who are very apologetic in their behavior. They're very compliant in their behavior. They really, it's like they're walking on eggshells when they're talking to women. Uh, they're very politically correct. Uh, they can't make jokes. They don't approach women. They don't flirt with women. So what are the long-term consequences of this? Well. I think, uh, you know, we can, we can fight for all of this stuff lo lo logically. My question is really, biologically, does that change things? No. I mean, men have, I know for me as a man, I have a natural desire to build and conquer. And, and people might say, well, that's not how it's supposed to be. But I can't help it. I'm driven mm -hmm. like that. I, when I see an attractive woman, I'm, I, I, feel, I think that she's attractive. Um, and I don't feel the need to, you know, tone down things. I want to go to the gym, I want to look strong. I, I, you know, I value strength in a man. 
So what we're seeing in the Western world is uh, the divorce rate is increasing. You know, it's very high in the in the in the Western world. Um, the there is a lot. I know personally a lot of attractive single women who complain that they can't find the right man. Mm. Uh, have been single for decades. Um, we are seeing the birth rate decline in the West uh, because naturally I'm attributing that to less chemistry between the genders because one of the things that naturally produces that chemistry is how different men and women are naturally, right? Right. So when you take away some of those differences and you remove some of that polarity, my question is, does that automatically diminish the chemistry between the genders as yeah. well? It makes it difficult because you're almost talking to a peer instead of a exactly. rep reproductive partner or a exactly. sexual partner. So, you, so now you are being forced to make decisions based on compatibility rather than on chemistry. And if you, say, reject a woman because she's not your type, you are made to feel bad like as a man because it's like, you know, you are very, um, you're, you're a, you know, you're a, um, what, a misogynist because you didn't respect this woman. And, but women can do that still. So women can mm. still reject men on physical attributes, uh, but men can't do it anymore without being made to feel guilt. So that's resulting in a very interesting society. And the question is, um, you know, there's a declining birth rate, naturally. Um, we have also, a lot of studies are saying that the sperm count has been gradually uh, dropping. I personally know a lot of my friends in the Western world who take testosterone injections in their 30s and 40s. What is that about? How did we, why are we losing testosterone? Mm. And part of that is because we're not really fulfilling our masculine destiny anymore. We are afraid. We are compliant. You know, and I think a little bit of risk-taking behavior is conducive to masculinity. Yeah. Uh, in my successful male event, somebody had asked me, what does masculinity, what's the one word that represents masculinity to you the most? My view is hardship. I, I believe that men thrive under hardship. Mm. We, you look at the men in the fields, you look at the men on construction sites. And you look, you look at, at soldiers. The the gyms. They are a different beast altogether. And they look good. Yeah. And they have a certain charisma that the man sitting at the nine to five desk cannot match. Yeah. Right? And so there is something about hardship that seems to bring out the best in men at least. Uh, I heard the saying that, you know, um, men, women thrive in comfort, but men are destroyed by it. So I think as men, I personally feel, and I'm just going by my own example, I make things tough for me mentally, uh, emotionally, financially, as much as I can, even physically, you know, go to the gym and do things that I don't really want to be doing. And I mm. find that I feel better. My self-esteem, my self-worth increases when I do those things. The more I opt for a life of comfort and convenience, I feel like I start to move uh, towards this depressive state. It's more like you've hung up the boots already and you're retiring. Yeah, so I'm wondering that potentially is there something where men are designed differently for a different purpose. And you know, I, I asked her, uh, I, I said this, and there was a, just a few days ago, I had a lady who's in, who's in my mentee group. I don't think she liked what I said about this because her reaction was a bit strange. And um, you know, I said to her, I said, listen, if your house was being invaded, who do you want defending your house? Do you want like a bunch of women, feminist women, or do you want like the baddest, meanest, most aggressive guy standing outside your home? Mm. And then also said to her, I said, another situation, I'm just going to tell you how different men and women are. If you and I were standing out there and some building caught fire, and there was a bunch of men and women standing outside, what you would generally see is women run. Yeah. They'll and make when a men go in to, def to save. And the, and the expectation is that women should run. So women will generally have their preservation instinct will kick in. I want to preserve myself, my beauty, and my offspring. Yeah. But there's an expectation. If you as a man ran, what will that do? You'll be called a coward, coward right? Yeah. But a, a woman will not be judged for it. And that's fine. And that's how it should be. See, this is the whole idea. 
if you want women to have their place in society, you have to be a masculine man. Because the moment you start stop being a masculine man, then you're saying, no, sorry, you as a woman need to run inside and rescue as well. Mm. Right? I wouldn't expect that. I would expect that you and I should risk our lives to save women, children, old people in that building. Women shouldn't have to do that. But if I believe that we're the same, then why should I run in the building? Yeah. Right? Let them run in as well. You see the problem with this. So the issue is that are women perhaps uh, wanting to have their cake and eat it too? And is that possible? Are they going to get that? I hope they do. It doesn't seem like they're going to get that though because the more they start to squash masculinity in men, the more they're going to attract men who are not going to take risks, even with them. And at some point, every woman desires that a man will take the risk to pursue her. Yeah. But if, you, if you've already squashed his risk-taking behavior by labeling as toxic, guess what? He's not approaching you either now. Right? So now you have to take the masculine role of approaching him and you have to take the masculine leadership role of taking care of your financial future. Do you really, if you want that pressure, you love it and you thrive it, go ahead. Just make sure that you are going to thrive with that pressure. Um, and if you want to do it, fantastic. But I don't think a lot of women enjoy that. I don't think a lot of women like the responsibility that comes with leadership and the pressure that comes with it. Yeah. And if they're being really real with themselves, and a lot of them don't like the idea of approaching a man when they're interested in him. They still would rather him approach her. But yeah. we're not seeing that as much because men are afraid. They don't want to be rejected. They don't want to be labeled as toxic. And yeah. so men are holding back now. They're standing back. And that's why a lot of online dating has happened where men don't have to take risks anymore. Yeah, you can just just do it on an app, but you still have to go and meet. And that's when all your real personality will come out. You can't. One of my joys still this day is just seeing someone attractive and just going and saying hi. Yes. And when, when I used to do it back in the day, it was pretty common because everyone around me was doing it. Now, when I do it, women are even more struck by surprise because they're like, this doesn't happen, which means happen. that no men are approaching women. No men are actually approaching women. Everyone's sort of just simping over in the Instagram reel section and just hoping that one day they would date this woman and it never happens. It never happens. And what is the consequence of that is you have a woman who remains single through her prime years yeah. and then never gets the opportunity. Biological clock is ticking. There are some natural things that we can't change. There's some biological things we can't change. And the system of society has always been that, you know, that the way, if you look at scriptures, the, the natural order was you had God first, then you had man, then you had woman, then you had children, and then you had animals. And the order, but, the, but, they, but there's obligation at each level. The obligation was that the man should abdicate his authority to God. So mm. He becomes a man of wisdom and courage, and he becomes a man of truth, and he becomes the defender of society. So he's, he's, he's supposed to be a leader. When a man does that, and you'll actually see this, men who do that naturally attract women yeah. who, who are willing to give up their authority for the man. You can't force a woman. You don't expect it from a woman. But I have found that women, even the strongest women, will naturally do it for the right man. They won't do it yeah. for the wrong man. But some cultures enforce it on the woman to give up her authority for a man, but they don't obligate the man to give up his authority to God. So, so the he can be bad, but she still has to be surrendered to him. And that, that's what results in women's oppression. And so yeah. women have reacted to that and gone, you know what, guys, fuck you. Uh, I'm going to go and drink and I'm going to go and party and I'm going to be promiscuous. So, but, and, and they're right in a way because it's like, as society, we have not really placed the obligation on men. We first yeah. need to place obligations on men before we place it on women. So I'm not against what women are doing, but I just think it's the wrong response. It's misunderstood. What women really 
and women can't solve this problem. It's the men in the families who need to go, my son needs to be a better leader first. I can't put all, my, all the obligation on my daughter-in-law to you know, I, I give up her authority for him when he's really not the type of man who's a leader. So I think we need to start enforcing that obligation on men first. Men need to become men first, good men, defenders, protectors, creators, providers. When men get back into that traditional role, they naturally become attractive to women, and the women are naturally prepared to give up the authority, I find, majority of women. Mm. Uh, what you're seeing in the Western world now is a lot of men are not even on the scene now. You have a, a single woman living with a cat, and generally the view is, I love my cat, my cat is like I'm a cat child. mom, I'm a dog mom, a, yeah. or I'm a dog dad, whatever. So we have, so there is no God in the picture, there is no man in the picture, so what we have is the cat comes first, then comes the woman, and that's it. There's no children, there's yeah. no men, there's no God. Um, and the question is, how is that going to work out for the West, uh, where this is becoming the norm? Is this really good for human society? Um, yeah. uh, you know, if you're seeing a decline in birth rate, does that potentially make a nation weaker from the inside? And it's, it's permeating in India as well. We already have gender pronouns as, as the sort of norm here. People are using them unwittingly, but they have no idea what they will do. Yep. Because then these things will trickle down further into organizations and institutions and suddenly we'll have, you know, like... I remember I actually read your tweet and you said you something you said which struck me by surprise was you said I never wanted to be given a reward for being an ethnic minority right it's one of the tweets that you mentioned and I I saw Twitter Elon Musk fired his diversity chair because that's just like okay just because you're brown you get to get mm -hmm. to the top because we need to sort portray a certain image um what do you talk more to that well, I mean, there is a lot of expectation that if you're poor, you should be given a handout. If you're a mi minority, you should be given a handout. If you're an ethnic person, you should be given a handout. The problem is that it weakens you. It doesn't actually make you stronger, right? Because you're asking for a handout. So I don't want to be treated specially for anything that people, you know, like there are people, um, minority groups who will say, you know, we've been disadvantaged. I mean, we've had a colonial past. So what should I do about it? I can't do anything about it. It's the past. I can keep, I can keep fighting for it and keep asking, go back to, you know, Anglo-Saxon people and go, you need to, and that's what's happening, by the way. It's mm. actually happening. There's a lot of um, African-Americans right now that are saying to the white people, you've disadvantaged us. Reparations. We're seeing Aboriginal people in Australia that are asking for that, exactly. I, I feel that as a brown man, and when I, mean, I look at the social hierarchy and where we sit, I would, my view is that um, when it, people do this unconsciously, but society places an incredible amount of value on the white woman. And I think then comes the white man then comes the black man, then comes the black woman, then comes the Asian woman, comes the Asian man, then comes the brown woman, then comes the brown man. And the reason I say this is because if you have, I've seen the bias in the media, you know, if you have a, a train accident or a flooding incident and 10,000 people just perish like that in one of the Asian parts of the countries, brown people die, it gets very limited footage. Um, but if uh, one white woman gets assaulted somewhere, uh, there's a media bias, uh, you know, that makes the news everywhere in the world. It gets a lot of footage. So that's okay, that's how the world is. You know, there are a lot of biases and beliefs that exist in the world, and sometimes you can't change that in your lifetime. So for me, it's like, okay, uh, as, far, as far as the social hierarchy is concerned, I'm at the bottom, because there's just so many of us, mm. right? So the inherent value is less. We, brown man is not used to sell high-end products. The white woman is used, right? Unless he's a massive celebrity and he's already gained power, right? Yeah. So it's very hard for, for us. So then it's like, okay, well, you know what? Um, society's not going to really give me a place, and I don't really want that sympathy place anyway. Yeah. I don't want society to pretend that they give a damn about me and go, oh, you know, we're going to treat you with respect and love because 
you've been disadvantaged. I don't want the sympathy vote. What I really want is to excel and earn that authority globally. I want to earn that by excelling in whatever I do, whether it's personality stakes, communication stakes, skill stakes, outcomes, productivity. I want to excel so I can command that authority. So I actually feel that's a, you know, it's a blessing in disguise because when you do stand out as a brown man internationally, you get that special recognition because it's rare. Yeah, look at all the tech CEOs. We know of them individually. Yes. So that's, and part of that is for me to raise that standard and help people realize, look, you know, you're in India right now and you may not even realize you placed a very low value on yourself. And, you know, sometimes you'll go to the West and you are either accepted from a sympathy point of view or you're accepted as an equivalent. But very rarely will you see somebody going into another part of the world and being able to maintain authority mm. over the locals, right, because of their skills. Uh, and so I feel like that's a t untapped space. And, you know, we, we, could, we need to encourage people to think that big yeah. rather than going, you know, well, I've made it to the West and I've got my house and my car and I've got a mortgage and I'm driving a BMW on lease. It's a very basic standard to aspire towards. And I'm really encouraging people to aspire for a better standard of leadership. Um, you know, I was in the lift today um, in, the, in the hotel in, at Pullman. And I got into the lift with a, a couple who were from another country, I think one of the European countries. I couldn't really tell by their accent. But, you know, here I am, they seem, even though I, I'm by nationality, you know, I'm living in another country, I'm representing India. So I said, hello, how's your experience in India? And when the door opened, you know, I offered for them to walk out because I thought, you know, this is my opportunity to make sure that people see that as Indians, we can be powerful and still be very uh, gracious. Yeah. Uh, what we're seeing in the urban India now is that we are trying to be so much like the West that we're giving up the graciousness. Because, but what we really need to do is not give up the graciousness. What we need to do is give up the subservience. So there's a bit of a difference, right? How do we maintain, how do we bring together graciousness and authority? That, to me, is the, the key point. We don't want to be rude hmm. because we're trying to prove to the Westerners that we're no longer subservient. No, let's be gracious, but let's earn the authority. After a few conversations, they should feel this level of admiration for us yeah. because we're incredibly competent and well presented. And I think that's the space where I see a massive opportunity. Without placing someone on a pedestal just because, yeah, they, exactly. because of the color of their skin. Correct. Um, yeah, the Indian subservience is a massive problem. I was in a, about six, seven years ago, I was in a hostel uh, with, a, with a friend and these other groups, other people, different ethnicities, they all gathered on our terrace to just chill out. And there were some Indians there and there was this couple, European couple, I don't know from which country in Europe, but they were there. And my friend and I are chilling, speaking with everyone of different nationalities. It's just having a good time. And these two Indian dudes come in and they're like, hey, you know, we really deserve your colonization. Why don't you colonize us again? Not as a joke, but as a sincere attempt at subservience and saying that you're great and we're, we're like below you. And I instantly said, okay, party's over, you know, everyone go out. Because I couldn't stand it. I thought this was disrespect to our culture and disrespect to... Um, even them, right, for assuming these two people who, you know, shit the same, eat the same, just because of the color of their skin, you treat them so differently and you want them to have power over you. So <clears throat> you very rightly pointed out that we need to kill these subservience because it exists still in large numbers. Well, let's not kill the graciousness, which yeah. makes Indians and an India an amazing culture. And that's the key, that we want to maintain that graciousness. That is so, because I love how gracious people are, you know, the hospitality of India. We don't want to lose that. And there are the two extreme views. You know, either we feel like they're up here 
or we then try and prove that you know we are the best. Like I, you do hear a lot of Indians in in Australia saying, you know, they don't like us because we're the most intelligent. I'm like, dude, that's not why this is happening. It's happening because of your behaviors. They don't like you. It's yeah. got nothing to do with your nationality. Don't make it about nationality, right? Because a lot of people will automatically attribute that if they're being treated badly by a Western person, that it's because of their race. Mm. It could be because of your behaviors. It could yeah. be because of your blind spots and your the way you're acting and the way you conduct yourself. Why do you automatically attribute that to your nationality? Yeah, that's a crutch because it allows you to then be a second-class citizen all your life. Victimhood again, yeah. right? It's like I can't help it. That's how they are. But they're not yeah. like that. The reality is that anywhere in the world, majority of people are decent and reasonable. And if you have high competence and you're excellent at something and you are really good at social skills and you have a great personality, people will respect you. But you've got to be mindful of these things. You've got to be mm. mindful, and I think a lot of people aren't mindful of these things. And I just see that. You know, when I'm, I need, I'm an ambassador for both countries. I need to show that I'm an ambassador for Australia. I'm an ambassador for India. I, I call myself Indo, Indian Australian mm. because whilst I was made in India, I've been brought up in, in Australia. Mm. I love both countries. I would fight for both countries. I care about the people of both countries. Both countries have given me a lot. So, you know, for me, it's a case of I, I represent both countries and let me be a good ambassador for both countries. Um, and, uh, you know, I encourage people to think that way and think that, you know, more and more Westerners. Right now, Westerners still see India as, you know, oh, you know, they don't, it, they don't have an aspiration to go to India. Mm. Such, you know, it's like if they want to, it's for a, you, they're going there for a humble experience. Yeah. You know, an awakening experience. But it needs to be more than that. It needs to be that they also, parts of India, they revere. Yeah. Right. And I'd like to see that happen more. And I feel like all Indians can play a part in that. Yeah, they should come here for commerce like they do in Dubai and for tourism like they do in Dubai. I, yep. think, I think they've sort of cracked it well. Yes. You're, yeah. you're right. You, they usually come for opening their third eye. Yes, right? which is like, you know, it's like, oh, they're so lovely. Indians are so lovely. They make yeah. such good curries and they look after Sorry us. You know, it's got to be more than that. It's got to be more than we just make curries and we look after people. It's got to be that we have actually set a high standard in something as well that the Western world can look up to, at least in some areas. And I think that won't happen unless we set the intent. Mm. Um, Ron, thank you so much for being here and speaking so openly. I don't think your Instagram <coughs> footage has some of the things we discussed today, a lot of the industry, the differences and things around masculinity. Um, I commend your style. I think you're a very dapper dude. Uh, and uh, if there's any message Oh, this is a little, little cheesy to say, but um, if there's any message you would like to send to our audiences, uh, any specific uh, thing you think they would benefit from uh, your experience, the mic is yours. There's one thing that, that comes up a lot for me when I'm in India, and that is that, you know, don't automatically assume when somebody is highlighting things that need to be improved in a country that they're criticizing it. Mm. Uh, I love India. I don't get any pleasure in criticizing it. But just as I'm critical on myself and I want to improve, somebody needs to be able to point out areas where we need to improve it without people assuming that we're attacking the country. Yeah. If we get too defensive, defensive, we're not going to improve, right? So let's not see every opportunity for improvement as an attack on the culture. There are things that need to be improved in every country. And we have things that we need to improve. How are we going to improve if we're too busy defending everything? Yeah, empty pride takes you nowhere. Exactly right. So pride gets in the way. You're 100% right. I think that's the... Perfectly way, perfect way to state it. Let's not allow pride to get in the way because this is the best we'll ever be. If you want to get to the next level, we need to really objectively look at what's working well. Let's maintain that. What isn't, let's change that. 
we don't want to blindly follow the West. The West has got a lot of things. They've got amazing organization structures, processes, and systems. But West, the West hasn't got everything right. Let's not blindly follow the West. Let's not blindly follow India and the way we've done things in the past either. How can we take the best of both? Because I have learned a lot from both countries. I'm very lucky. I've seen what the West does well. It's been an instrumental part of my growth, and I've seen what India does well, and it's been an instrumental part of my growth. I will, never, I will always create my own ideology. I will never follow something blindly. So I think, there is, I think it's time now that if we're going to go from 2023 towards 2030 to be a great country that we've been claiming to be for many years, the superpower, the prosperous country, the main international destination for Western travelers, I think we're going to have to really take, we're going to have to reflect and take an objective view and go, what other things that we could be improving on? Let's not defend those things. I think that's really my message at the end of the day. I'm not here to criticize people. I'm not here to criti criticize institutions. Really, my goal is how can we progress and get to the next level? But I think what you say makes sense because when I was living in America for four years, as an outsider, I could see a lot of things that they got right, but a lot of things they got wrong. And a lot of my friends appreciated my criticisms because I came from a different culture. So I think it's very important that you, that you sort of have a leg in both cultures and you can see what works for one, what doesn't work for another. Um, Otherwise, you get accused and you know, you're bringing your Western bullshit here. No, we're not. I'm just looking at what is the best practice, uh, principle-centric, that has worked for a lot of people, yeah. resulted in happier people, more fulfilled people, and more prosperous people, and healthier people. Wherever that comes from, I don't care. Mm. If it's something that's good for us as hu human beings, let's do it. Yeah. Well, here's to making Indians a lot more wealthier, and thank you for all the lessons on wealth. I'm going to re-listen to this again, um, and uh, hopefully compound my wealth and then reach out and say I did it. Um, I appreciate that. So thank you. thank you so much, Ron. It was a pleasure. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you.